Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. Hello everyone, we've made it. Spring at last, or so I'm told, the Arctic weather front hitting the UK at the moment seems to give lie to that little idea. I certainly know the Easter egg hunt I was doing at the school today was more than a little chilly and snowy. Still, it is spring, and I wanted to give you all another episode, another mini-sode, whilst I work on the next episode, because it's been a while since we've done a little dive into the Victorian era ahead of the main narrative. But first, I want to say a big thank you to some listeners for getting in touch and for their iTunes reviews. First, Dylanov, I think that's how you say it. Dylanov in Canada. The iTunes review you left was really wonderful and I deeply appreciate it. As you know, I'm a big fan of history from the perspective of the everyday people and the individuals. And so are a lot of you out there. So thank you. Marisas, Marissa, Marisas in the USA. Again, thank you. It's really kind of you to get in touch. And yes, accessibility is really important. There are a lot of people out there who have additional needs and I'd like to think that we podcasters could maybe do a little bit more to try and help people who want to be involved get involved. It has been lovely chatting to all my listeners recently, like Bill, who now knows all about my sufferings on my commute. I'm sure a few of you have seen that on Twitter and my near daily war with the train company. Also, shout out to Lyndon. I hope the music list helped you put a name to the tune. So, if anyone is listening and you want to leave a review on iTunes, as you can see, it is really appreciated. Also, I've added a new transcript to the website for episode 006 to continue my commitment to increasing accessibility. Plus, there is an article in the musing section of the website for the first time, where I give you my views on the excellent BBC series BBC Civilization in 1969, and the modern 2018 version, BBC Civilizations. I do need to say there will be some episodes coming up that are a bit more of a bird's eye view than I like. That's because they are about grand European diplomacy that created the post-war settlement. They had focus at the higher level of view because the people directly involved are foreign secretaries and kings and czars and so on. So it is a bit unavoidable, but don't worry, we will have plenty of the people-focused content as we go forward. For those of you who have asked why I am so fascinated by the everyday life in history, well, part of it is simply that I think if you don't understand the everyday happenings, then really you're just getting a bit of pop history and a bit of a, wow, wasn't Caesar great, but you're not really digging in and understanding what happened. So I think it's important from that point of view. But another part of it comes from reading an absolute classic book by Henry Mayhew. He was born in 1812. He was a novelist and journalist. He knew Dickens and like Dickens he had his brush with bankruptcy and hard times. He wrote a book, well a series of books, called London Labour and the London Poor. He had a real journalist's eye and a talent for talking to people. He came to see himself as the intermediary between the rich and the poor. 
He interviewed over 700 individuals during 436 interviews, carefully recording the thoughts and experiences of people who would otherwise have vanished from our history without trace. It is a spellbinding piece of work that can still provoke a powerful response. Hearing from the Mugglark child who hunted for rubbish in the mud at the low tide of the River Thames, hearing how he repeatedly cut himself by broken glass and was left unable to walk for three months because of getting nails in his bare feet, how a chance encounter led to him going to school. Then a friend of Mayhew's took pity on the boy and got him an apprenticeship in a printer's. This was not a happy-go-lucky scamp who's reaping the riches of empire. This was a child suffering in the cold and the wet. But for him at least, there was a very lucky break at the end. Mayhew's voice is the reason why a voice like this child's can ever be heard again in history. There will always be books and statues for men like Caesar or Richard the Lionheart, but these people are actually outliers and don't tell us what the everyday could be really like. Accounts from mudlarks and oyster stellers, from dockers and factory hands, tell us about the reality of the societies. Now, let's get to today's real topic. Nobody likes January to March. There's nothing good about this period. Of course, we all hate our jobs when we go back after the Christmas break. There isn't anything to look forward to, and we all dream about quitting our jobs for something warmer and nicer. So, to help everyone feel a bit better about being back at the desk or the shop counter again, I originally thought I'd talk about some awful Victorian jobs to make you feel better about the 9 to 5 and dreadful commute. At least that was the plan when I started writing this show. It was supposed to be a light-hearted run through some Victorian trivia. As soon as I started looking, of course, I realised that the truth is there isn't really such a thing as light-hearted when you look at the reality of Victorian life. I also realised I might just be in love with Annie Besant, but we'll get to her in a minute. There's almost too much to choose from in the Victorian era when thinking about terrible jobs. A lot of modern British nostalgia around being an economic superpower fundamentally misunderstands how dreadful working in the Victorian economy could actually be. Certainly the aristocracy opted out. It was the mark of the aristocracy that you didn't work. You might go into politics, of course, but that wasn't seen as work. Science could be seen as a gentleman's pursuit, especially in the late Victorian era, with the rise of the geologists requiring time and funding that abounded in the upper classes. Nor was a senior military position incompatible with the aristocracy. That was seen as noble and gentlemanly, as well as promoting the heroic virtues. What was avoided was trade, industry and management. Those were for the common people. Amongst the middle classes, a lot of employment was fairly dull and would be recognisable today. There were far fewer statutory legal rights for employees, but with less statutory interference, contract enforcement was taken extremely seriously in the middle classes. A middle class clerk who had contractual rights would expect them to be heavily supported by law, and employers would tend to respect them. Skilled craftsmen and technical specialists had pretty secure employment. Outside the upper middle class and middle middle class, employment became a more difficult and chancy affair. In the working class, widespread illiteracy and job insecurity meant that written contracts could be rare. 
employment was precarious at best, and even where there were contracts, they were difficult to enforce, and people were often open to exploitation. Even so, there were some kinds of jobs that had a special kind of awfulness to them. Below the common workers in the mines and factories, whose working conditions were often described as hellish, there was the underclass, the truly desperate. The life of a street prostitute in the East End, for instance, was often violent and open to disease. But prostitution has always been a risky profession, and sex workers have attracted disproportionate discrimination, victimisation and violence throughout history. Now, I want to talk about some employment that was uniquely Victorian and uniquely awful. There is obviously lots to choose from. There were the pure collectors. These collected dog shit from the streets to sell to the tanners. It was a vital component for tanning leather. Doesn't sound too bad? Well, in these days of a plastic bag, plastic glove or a pooper scooper, picking up after your dog is easy. For the Victorians... This trade was done by hand or with long rags. Some pure traders used a glove, but others maintained it was harder to wash a glove. So that's hours of pounding the street, picking up dog shit with your hands, then putting it into a covered basket. The smell must have been awful. Remember though, there was no antiseptic soap or disinfectant. Imagine the infections you could have picked up. And don't forget, if you were one of the working Victorian poor... Access to fresh water for washing might have been rather difficult in itself. Why would anyone do this job? Was it desperation? Well, yes, that played a big part. Obviously, any employment was prized. But over and above that, the average wage of a pure finder could be surprisingly high compared to other kinds of rubbish collector. Average wage during the height of the industry was around 10 shillings a week compared to the average unskilled wage of seven shillings sixpence. That's a big step up. It meant you were well above the average, and the extra food or gin it could buy would be highly coveted. The trade-off was that you were nearly at the bottom of the social ladder. Although, interestingly, the high wage meant that men chased women out of the industry. This high wage, though, means it can't be the absolutely worst Victorian job. The above average wage meant that starvation and homelessness were avoided. Provided you were healthy, you could do it for years, although wages could be quite seasonal. And I would imagine the smell was maybe a little bit of a barrier to an active social life. I thought about a few others. The quintessential Victorian job is, of course, the chimney sweep. This was a pretty horrible job and really, really is arguably one of the worst jobs. Chimneys were cramped and twisty. That was why very young children were sent up them. Working in cramped conditions meant knees and elbows were often damaged. Skin was repeatedly scraped off, leading to calluses and scarring. Deformed skeletons were common. Large numbers of children were blighted by incurable lung disease caused by the soot. In some cases, being a sweep was tantamount to a death sentence. Young children were sought after and deliberately underfed so that they stayed small. This was by any stretch of the imagination an awful job, but it wasn't a long-running one. In 1840, Parliament made it illegal for anyone under 21 to climb and clean a chimney. 
Whilst people obviously continued to employ children illegally, at least it was illegal and on the decline. As I mentioned earlier, being a mudlark was just pretty awful too, but it was survivable and often transient on the way to other employment. I think that the top of my unscientific list goes to a particularly nasty job, one that doesn't immediately leap out at you as truly terrible, and that was making matches. That doesn't sound so bad. It was indoor work in a factory, so the hours were long, but it wasn't that different from much of the other factory work. The problem comes from the very specific problems of making matches. The chemist John Walker invented the process that allowed for the frictionless modern match, a huge improvement on the chemical matches that were coming into use. Walker wanted his matches to benefit the whole of mankind, so didn't patent his methods. Companies were quick to exploit this by introducing very subtle changes to the process and then getting a patent. It's almost inevitable to learn that Walker, of course, died penniless, having made such a world-shaking invention. It was improved upon by many others until in 1830, white phosphorus was introduced to the process as the perfect accelerant. This was a big boon for producers. It was cheap, safe for customers to use and could be mass-produced. There was immense demand for this new style match. Factories recruited huge numbers of women and children to make matches. At the giant Bryant and May, they employed 1,400 workers and produced 300 million matches a day. The conditions were awful. Hours for young children were usually 0600 in the morning until 1800 in the evening. That's a very long day for a six-year-old. They were paid four shillings in theory a week. In practice, their employers would fine them for dropping matches or talking or sitting down or going to the lavatory without permission. Beatings from overseers were common. One girl was docked wages for letting a web get tangled on a machine to prevent her fingers being sliced off. It was clear that the overseer would have rather she had lost some fingers than the factory lost time and money. These were desperate children from desperate families. Whilst in law, they were technically free, the only way out might be searching the mud in the Thames or child prostitution. Freedom to starve is no freedom, as the old saying goes. Indeed, due to various stoppages, the fact that workers were often paid on piecework, and due to other sharp practices, it is likely that Bryant and May would have actually found it more expensive to employ indentured servants than their own workers. Worse than the conditions in the exploitation, though, was the effect of white phosphorus on the workers. Phosphorus is extremely toxic. It made things glow in the dark, including body parts, and it gave rise to the dreaded fossy jaw. This is actually osteonecrosis of the jaw. It was developed by inhaling the fumes from phosphorus over a long period or consuming it with food. During your lifetime, the jaw regrows and remodels itself using osteoblast cells. Phosphorus interferes with this process with dire results. Onset of the condition was typically five years with about a 5% incident rate amongst those exposed. The condition started with toothache and bones glowing in the dark. Teeth would fall out and abscesses that oozed and stank would develop. This was followed by progressive brain damage and death. The only treatment was aggressive amputation of parts of the jaw if possible. 
leading to permanent disfigurement. That was if the girl could access a surgeon somehow, and if she survived the brutal nature of the operation in the pre-antibiotic age, with only basic anaesthetics, even those who survived were horrifically disfigured. The condition was described vividly by Dr. Alice Hamilton in the United States. Quote, Fossy jaw is a very distressing form of industrial disease. It comes from breathing the fumes of white or yellow phosphorus, which gives off fumes at room temperature, or from putting it into the mouth, food or gum, or fingers smeared with phosphorus. Even drinking from a glass, which is stood upon a workbench, is dangerous. The phosphorus penetrates into a defective tooth and down through the roots to the jawbone, killing the tissues, which then become the prey of suppurative germs in the mouth and abscesses form. The jaw swells and the pain is intense, for the suppuration is held in by the tight covering of the bone and cannot escape except through surgical operation or through a fistula boring to the surface. Sometimes the abscess forms in the upper jaw and works into the orbit, causing the loss of an eye. In severe cases, one lower jawbone may have to be removed, or an upper jawbone, or perhaps both. There are cases on record of men and women who had to live all of the rest of their days on liquid food. The scars and contractures left after recovery were terribly disfiguring and led some women to commit suicide. Here was an industrial disease which could be clearly demonstrated to the most sceptical. Miss Adams told me that when she was in London in the 1880s, she went to a mass meeting of protest against Fossy Jaw, and on the platform were a number of pitiful cases showing their scars and deformities. End quote. By 1844, the causes of the condition were clearly identified by scientists in Vienna and New York. It was known office workers in the match factories were safe from the effects, whilst their low-paid workers in direct contact with the matches developed the condition. By the 1850s, chemists had worked to produce a substitute. It would be too late for many. A worker who found the onset of symptoms would have known what terrible fate was in store for her, and so would some of her family. Imagine comforting your daughter or your sister, but knowing what was in store when she was infected. Even when a safer alternative existed, many companies refused to use it. Companies were far too interested in the high profits to care that their workers were dying off. They took the view that there's plenty more where that came from and we have a duty to our shareholders to maximise return on investment. They wielded enormous power and political influence. The situation erupted in the United Kingdom in 1888 when investigative journalist Annie Besant visited the Bryant and May factory while she was researching a story on low pay for workers whilst owners and shareholders were making staggering profits. Dividend payments were up to 25%. Bryant and May employed 1,400 workers. Her interviews quickly brought out a picture of horror and suffering when she had originally simply been looking at the distribution of wages against profits. This was shocking to her, though. In late Victorian England, she went to print in her own newspaper with the headline, White Slavery in London. She absolutely lambasted the company 
and the industry, saying, quote, Who cares if they die or go onto the streets, provided only that Bryant and May shareholders get their 23%, end quote. Bryant and May threatened to sue her for libel. But Annie basically said, bring it on, which was hugely gutsy given Britain's notorious libel laws. The company counterattacked in the press, calling Annie a brainwashing socialist and launched personal attacks against the girls and suspected informers on the workforce. Bryant and May also threatened to take their business overseas. The company knew it had a serious problem though. It had had at least 47 cases of phosphorus necrosis. It had covered up the deaths of six workers and failed to notify the Home Office of 17 cases. The threat of libel really didn't cow Annie. Here's her open letter to the company. Quote, I was called out of a meeting against the sweating system on Wednesday night by a workman friend of mine who came to me from Bow with the news that Bryant and May's factory was in a state of commotion and the girls were being bullied to find out who had given me the information printed last week. Cowards that they are. Why not at once sue me for libel and disprove my statements in open court if they can instead of threatening to throw these children out into the streets? But they hope thus to terrorise the girls from giving evidence and so prevent their treatment of them from leaking out. End quote. Bryant and May clearly didn't know just who they were dealing with. As a rich, multinational company with connections in the press and parliament, they expected to crush these upstart factory girls and a lowly journalist. But Annie wasn't a lowly journalist. She was highly intelligent and already somewhat notorious for her divorce, being a working single mother and campaigning for birth control she would come to be known as one of the finest orators in the Victorian era. Remember, that's in an age where that really meant something spectacular. Some of her audience knew Mark Twain, Abraham Lincoln, Gladstone and the Duke of Wellington and many others. So that's quite an accolade. She was incredibly intelligent, had a genius for connecting with people, understanding what made them tick and she had a dogged tenacity that made her a powerful enemy. She had already cut her teeth in campaigning by attacking church corruption, championing birth control, organising mass labour demonstrations and speaking up for the unemployed. She would go on to be highly influential in other strikes, was eventually close to the Marx family, took to campaigning for Indian independence and for championing human rights worldwide. She felt that the value of a life in Kabul was equal to that of the highest lord in London and that socialism was about poverty, saying, quote, The chief fact it deals with is the fact of poverty. End quote. For her, socialism was nothing to do with interesting forms of government or forces of history. It was an absolute necessity to counteract the colossal imbalances of wealth in the Victorian era. Intellectualist socialism and economics was especially unappealing for her. She believed in action. Annie seems like she must have read The Art of War because she attacked on multiple fronts, turning her enemies' strengths against them. She counterattacked the press releases from Bryant and May by not only saying her accusers were lying, 
but saying she'd drag everyone into any libel trial with pleasure because she had the evidence to back it up. This neutralised the press and prevented any libel actions to help get more evidence and fight the enemy on their own turf. She called in factory inspectors to look into wage violations. Firing a worker didn't help Brian and May. The other workers went out on full strike, surprising even Annie. So she helped them set up a trade union. Annie then took the fight to Parliament. Literally. She and her matchstick girls were determined and burst into Parliament, forcing MPs to listen to them and their stories. And they found an eager audience against many reform-minded MPs. Then... The girls marched down the embankment on the Thames, drumming up support. Where the company tried to quiet things down, she made more of a noise. When the company tried to get statements from workers to show that they were a benevolent employer, Annie got counter-statements showing that the statements of support from the company were made under duress, and she threatened the company with counterclaims of manufacturing evidence. Annie also kept up the pressure in the press. She collected donations to cover the wages of the strikers, highlighted problems and wasn't afraid to use pure smulch if it got the message across. For instance, she said, quote, Do you know that girls are used to carrying boxes on their heads until the hair is rubbed off and the young heads are bold at 15 years of age? Country clergyman, with your shares in Bryant's and May's, draw down on your knee your 15-year-old daughter, press your hand tenderly over the silky beauty of the black shining tresses, end quote. Bang! Right there she nails some key themes. Love of family, victimised children, the Victorian ideal of the perfect family. Then she illustrates the personal, and notice how it is the supposedly Christian clergyman who owns shares made from the back of human misery. It was also a nicely targeted stab at the owner of Bryant May, the proud Quaker and alleged liberal William Bryant. It was both an appeal for funds and a right hook to the jaw. With a deft eye for publicity, she got the campaign linked with George Bernard Shaw to add a celebrity sparkle. Annie was pulling off a masterclass in mass campaigning that set out many of the principles for the labour movement and social media age that we experience today. The company capitulated fairly soon afterwards, agreeing to re-employ fired workers, separating the food areas from the factory floor so that workers no longer had to eat contaminated food and getting rid of the system of deductions from wages. All in all, it had been a PR disaster for Bryant and May. Eventually, even the manufacturers were compelled by changes in culture and protests to switch to safer methods, usually by legislation, but the US preferred aggressive taxation. There's an interesting newspaper notice from the Diamond Match Company in the New York Times on the 29th of January 1911, saying, quote, Match patent ended for good of humanity. To stop poisoning in factories, Diamond Match Co. lets competitors use its methods. Heed's appeal from Taft clears way for federal law prohibiting use of white phosphorus deadly to workers, end quote. That's in 1911. These companies were dragging their feet and still trying to claim virtue. Again, 
Dr. Hamilton gives us an interesting view. Quote, All this I had learned, but I had been assured by medical men who claimed no, there was no fossy jaw in the United States, because American Max factories were so scrupulously clean. Then, in 1908, John Adams came to Hull House and showed me the report of his investigation of American match factories and his discovery of more than 150 cases of fossy jaw. It seems that in the course of a study of wages of women and children made by the Bureau of Labour under Carol Wright, investigators came across cases of fossy jaw in women match workers in the South. This impelled White to institute an investigation into other match centres. Andrews was asked to carry it out, and he did so, with the result most disconcerting to American optimism. Some of the cases he discovered were quite as severe as the worst reported in European literature. The loss of jawbones, of an eye, sometimes death from blood poisoning. End quote. Bryant and May continued in various forms as a company, grew immensely, growing through mergers and rebranding. The name alone survives now. Britain ceased manufacturing matches in 1994. So, making unsafe matches, bossy jaw, low pay, and job insecurity in matchmaking are now a thing of the past, right? We can all shudder at the horrors our poor Victorian ancestors went through but at least they're firmly in the past. I'm sorry to say no, Fossy Jaw has at least been eliminated from the matchmaking industry. It is still with us as a side effect of some medications containing biophosphonate used to treat metastatic cancer and osteoporosis. Luckily, modern treatment involves antibiotics, special mouthwashes and targeted surgery. Diagnosis can be extremely quick, especially if the dental team in charge know that these medications are being taken long term. An early intervention makes things light years better than the poor Victorian girls who fell victim. Matchmaking is now an important industry in India. Interestingly, it was started by the Japanese and Indian communities, not the British. I'm not an expert in Indian economics, but I did manage to track down an industry survey report from 2014, which had the positive glow of an official report. But it still showed that work remains heavily focused on unskilled manual labour, with many activities that would have been recognisable to the Victorians. Pay inequality remains a significant issue, with men either earning more or holding almost exclusive access to higher paid positions. Hours can be long, and pay rates vary by day and region. The workforce has breaks, but labour enforcement appears patchy. The work units have good, but not universal access to toilet facilities. The report on the Indian match industry from the Food and Agriculture Organisation of the United Nations is much less positive, citing child labour, including children under 10, low pay, insecurity, industrial complexity and over-concentration of the industry in the Tamil Nadu region, leading to the 18 founding families of the industry controlling 67% of the Indian matchmaking market. Political corruption has gone hand-in-hand with the large companies, it is alleged, and a 
attempts to build micro-industry have been frustrated. So for all of us who smugly think that the horrors of the past are long gone, well, often they are still with us. They're just better hidden. Out of sight is out of mind. The poor Indian workers making cheap matches are suffering, even if bossy jaw, at least, has been banished from the industry. We need people like Annie Besant sometimes to give us a good kick in our complacency. I wish I had time to tell you her life story in this mini-sode, because it really is incredible, and we are definitely doing a full-on show on her. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this mini-sode. Thanks, and take care. You can reach me at the email, ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter, or via the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to check out the website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com, And please do leave a review on iTunes. Thanks and take care.